All right, so we're just uh, going to take this time now and just open up God's Word and continue on our, our journey through the book of Esther. So today we'll be reading from, from Esther 5, verses 1 to 8. And I encourage you guys to just follow along with me. And if you don't have a Bible, then put up your hand and the ushers will bring one to you. If you don't have a Bible at all in your life, feel free to take this one home and, and call it yours. So in the, the Bibles, uh, the church Bibles anyway, um, the reading is found on page 413. So Esther 5, verses 1 to 8, it says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given, given you, even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king... Let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, king, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It will be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled." Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if, the, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has asked, has said. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we've been... Uh journeying through Esther, and uh, Pastor Matt spoke last week. Uh, Pastor Matt is not with us right now. He's uh, having a bit of a vacation, if you call uh, being the camp pastor at a, a Joy Bible Camp this uh, weekend. I think he only has to do 10-minute devotionals. Uh, so he, uh, he's, he's him and his family are away right now. So you can just pray for a rest for him and, uh, and for Andrea and the, two, uh, the baby, Kate and Nixon, uh, just so that uh, they get a good rest uh, this week. Um, we're gonna uh, open. We're gonna. We want to open the Bible here. Open to Esther. If you've already, if you're not there yet, uh, Esther is a bit of a Cinderella story. A Cinderella story where it's an orphan Jewish girl. Man, this is like Disney, right? Right in. We, I'm sure we could create something for this. You know, she rises to be the queen of the Persian Empire. As we read this story, it's in this crucial time in history. It's a, it's a story written to explain something. Do you know that? It's not just random that this story is, is in the Bible. It's written to explain how the origin of this Jewish feast called Purim. And so it takes place not in Jerusalem, this story, like Ezra and Nehemiah, but in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. And it is during the time of King Xerxes. It's that time between the rebuilding of the temple at the beginning of Ezra and it's the secondary build found in Nehemiah. Okay? 
I know some of you may be new to the Bible and that, that kind of thing. We'll slowly, as you keep coming out, we'll keep teaching you history uh, so, that it, so that the Bible can come alive in, in its history in the real-life accounts. We find this uh, 80-year period, and it's t- in this 80-year period that the story of Esther takes place. And so in chapters 1 and 2, we watch as Esther becomes queen. She is personally chosen by the king. The king loves Esther, it says, more than all the other women, and she found favor and kindness with him. That's what two, verse, chapter 2, verse 17 says. That's how, that's how we're introduced to Esther. Her beauty, her intelligence captivate a rather self-serving king. He's not a nice guy. He's, uh, in many ways, he's, he, the light, everything about life has been given to him. He's, he's uh, got all the power in the world. And this hasn't uh, made him a nicer person. He's a user of people and very arrogant. But in chapters 3 and 4, Mordecai, Esther's guardian, we, we're not sure if it's his un, an uncle or a relative. There's a, it's sort of a word, it's like a guardian there. It's, often it's translated as an uncle. But it, it's really someone who's been taking care of it from the family of Esther. So Mordecai refuses, though, to bow down and pay homage to a, to a guy named Haman, who's a high official in the, in the king's court, Haman seemingly has a built-in ha- hatred of, uh, of the Jewish people already. And you kind of wonder about, like, what, why does he hate Mordecai so much? Like, usually you could say, like, well, it's just one guy not, being not as honorable to, towards me. But we actually are introduced to his background, and it, it says in, in chapter 3 that he's an Agite. The Agagites, I can't even say it all the time, were descendants of the Malachites, who were one of those adulterous peoples that God told King Saul to, to wipe out completely. But they didn't do the job. They were disobedient. And so a bunch of them escape. And they even, uh, uh, eventually, they let, and they let King Agag, Agag uh, spare it. They spare his life. And Samuel has to do the job of killing King Agag. But a lot of those people, they didn't do the job and they escape and they become a people that hate the Jewish nation. And so you can imagine Mordecai's this, from his very birth he, in the family, they, he had been taught, you know, those Jews. He had been taught about a, a, a racial hatred. And we find uh, hatred and racism even today gets passed down from generation to generation, Right? It's easy for a family to uh, pass on their, uh, their mistrust of all their, you know, those people, whatever it is. And we can only imagine Haman being raised in this home where Jews were despised from their very youth. It's, it's such an interesting thing, eh? None of this stuff is random. How you, you wonder how you read a, a, a book like this and you don't hear God being mentioned at all, but this is not a book of chance. There's so many things that you're, you're like, man, that, that just worked out how you see how pieces f- come together. And it flows out of, it, out of Israel's past disobedience and failure. Well, Mordecai, he hears the plot against 
the Jewish people. He hears about what Haman wants to do to destroy all the Jewish people, and he reports it to Esther. And he says this in chapter 414, For if you remain silent in this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have, been, have attained royalty for such a time as this. And that's the key verse that Matt was talking about last week. And, and uh, Esther has to come to uh, this decision. Do I align myself with God's people or do I stay in the palace? Do I stay in the comfort? Do I stay where it's safe? Or do I risk something to align myself with God? And so this is it. This is the backdrop for chapter 5 that was just read, the first eight verses that we read there. And in chapter 5, we find this interesting study in identities. We find two people. It's a contrast of sorts between Queen Esther and this man called Haman. In the first eight verses, we find Esther, she begins to act on this decision that she makes in chapter 4. When Mordecai calls her to act, she asks for prayer for three days and three nights from all of her friends and family. And then she says, I, following this time of prayer, she would, says, I'm going to take this risk. If I die, I die. I will take this risk and I'm going to approach the king uninvited. And Matt said last week, there's really only a few select people that could come uninvited into the king's presence. And if he didn't want you in his presence and you showed up, you know what it was? It was, uh, it was a potential death sentence for yourself. He had, he, he, in, in a bad day, he could put you to death. And that's what we find here is that Esther knows the risk and she says, I will go before the king uninvited. Her actions in this verse reveals that Esther, though, uh, in these next eight verses, shows that Esther is more than just beautiful on the outside. She has something inside. She is wise, she is shrewd, and she understands how people work. And she has an understanding how to deal with difficult people. And so I wanted to give you, at the beginning here, a a case study. Because this is a case study in how to win friends and influence people. There's a famous book, okay? I totally ripped it off, okay? Dale Carnegie wrote this book called How to Win Friends and Influence People. Esther didn't read that book, but she understands it, okay? Dale Carnegie gives a great example how to approach people to win them over in, in, when you have conversations with them. He says this, Personally, I'm very fond of strawberries and cream, but I've found that for some strange reason, fish prefer worms. So, I went, so when I go fishing... I don't think about what I wanted. I think about what they wanted. I didn't bait the hook with strawberries and cream. Rather, I dangled a worm or a grasshopper in front of the fish and said, wouldn't you like to have that? Why not use the same common sense when fishing for people? So verses 1 to 8. Here's Esther, a woman who understands a a rather self-serving man. She knows him well enough. She's uh, been intimate with him. She's uh, spent some time with him. She knows the king's self-centered tendencies, his pride, his authority. And she approaches the king in such a way as to attract his attention. She knows her looks were an asset in the beginning. 
So she decides to put on the royal clothes, the nice stuff. Uh, it's like bringing out the, the fine china uh, when you want to impress somebody. She puts on the royal, the royal clothes. There's no doubt she spent some time on her looks here because this is who King Xerxes is. He's, uh, he's one who just is concerned about his, the looks of this woman. And so she stands. She, she doesn't demand, though, her presence in it. She doesn't run in and say, I am your wife. You listen to me. You see the unhealth of this relationship. This is not a, this is not a, this is not a marriage uh, in, in, a, in a healthy way. She has to stand at the back. And she presents herself and just kind of waits. And you can almost see her, you can imagine her being waiting in the shadows, uh, hoping and, and sort of waiting for him to take notice that she's there. But she doesn't run in and just kind of uh, demand her right to be heard. She communicates in, a, in the way of that time what would have been a respectful way uh, to a person. He would have been giving honor to, the, to that person. The king notices the presence of his wife. And we see that in verse 2. It says that she won favor in his sight. Well, this favor isn't something new. It's not, it's not like, oh, she just won favor. It's back in, uh, chap- in, back in chapter 217, the king loves Esther more than all the other women. And she won grace and favor back then. This favor has continued. More than she's won uh, favor in his sight more than all the other virgins. And he set her, the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. This is a, a, um, not a monogamy, though. We, she, he's got many partners, many women in his harem. And we see uh, Xerxes just builds into his pride and his arrogance and his desire just to take as a man. But it does speak, this whole situation does speak into this thing where she knows him in a way that we cannot. She knows how to approach this this man. To our modern sensibilities, it seems backwards. And even today, men and women present themselves in, the re- in, in, a, in a way that is to, we're not real with each other all the time. Just check out the Instagram accounts of most people. We post our favorite pictures, our, our best looks. But Esther knows this king and he, she has the truth to present and she uses common sense in fishing for the king's ear. And the result is the king granting, he says, I'll grant any request you want up to half of my kingdom. That's a pretty good, uh, it's a pretty good offer, okay? She's getting, she's got his ear, she's got his favor. And, uh, and unless you believe this book to be all about chance, which I don't, um, God uses this dance to open a narcissistic heart to listen. This will frustrate some of you in this room who love things to be direct. You want uh, it, you're like, I just want the story to be direct. I want to be able to approach someone and say what is needed to be said. She knows that that's not going to work. And so she does this dance around. But the truth is here that people's hearts are not ruled by logic in this world. 
most of the time. Pete, we're dealing with creatures of emotion, creatures bristling with prejudices, and motivated by pride and vanity, aren't we? All around us. If everything was logical, some of you would love it, but that's just not the real life. There's real emotional creatures all around us, and we are one of them. King Xerxes is an example of that creature. And so Esther, for some of the reasons we can suggest, but some reasons we don't know, chooses to appeal to a man who loves feasts by inviting him to a private party for three. Okay? They think it's a romantic dinner, CN Tower kind of thing. No, she says, let's have dinner. Let's invite a third wheel uh, by the name of Haman. There's a, 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 not, it's a less worldly, but, and it's a less manipulative lesson in this chapter for us as we seek to find the, as we seek to share truth with other people around us. Okay? If we're to read this, this passage and understand it, um, you and I know this. Many people recognize the evil of this world, but don't appreciate being told that they're part of that evil. That they have evil in their hearts. That they've done evil. The, the Bible doesn't reject the idea of gaining favor with people as a manip, as Sorry, the Bible doesn't reject the, the idea of gaining favor with people as manipulative, but rather as wise living in situations. Proverbs tells us what this looks like. He says, let, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so that you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So last week, Matt challenged us about our boldness of our faith. And he said, about making the choice to let others know about the gospel and the work in our lives and, he, and to share the gospel, whatever the cost is. Okay? Now, that, that is truth for us. It's just straight truth, right, that we need to hear. That challenge. But as we begin to respond to it, some of us, um, many of us can sometimes... Uh, respond to a call of boldness. When somebody preaches to you, it's, it's a response of guilt. Like, oh, I'm, I'm not doing that. So then you're like, okay, I should post Sunday afternoon some kind of Facebook post that declares my undying love for Jesus. Uh, or I should uh, make some kind of uh, public statement in this moment. And we switch to, uh, even in our conversation, sometimes swinging to uh, a a tactless approach in our presentation. Uh, we can swing to sharing the truth with, without any sense of timing or compassion, right? Trying to shove the truth down people's throats. And friends, I, this, uh, I was reading this week, this week uh, a good barber lathers his client up before giving him a shave, Okay? We should always remember the, the words of Martin Luther who said, we are all beggars in need of bread. Never were we better than anyone else who, are see, who we are seeking to share our story with. We are all beggars in need of bread. We're just people trying to show people where to find bread. 
while healthy apologetics is very useful, it's very good, arguments never bring people into the kingdom of God. I've tried. It doesn't work. And as we share the gospel with people, they may reject it. They are, the Bible says people will reject the gospel. But at least they know where to find bread. And they find a person who wants to, talk, to, to show it to them. And Esther here demonstrates that there is a way of approaching people, especially difficult people, in such a way as to promote favor, as to promote, uh, hopefully, when God works, a listening ear. And Christians, of all people, understanding our own need of grace, we should be the ones that are, that are seeking to present the truth boldly. We're not talking about shrinking back here. But with an understanding that, that our, our mouth and lips and lives need to be seasoned with grace. That we should not be expecting Christians to act like Christians before the Spirit of God has worked in their heart. And so if you come with just this harsh, critical attitude in your conversations... Don't be surprised if you lack favor amongst people. Some of us in this room struggle with opening your mouth at all. You're not opening your mouth in your life. And that needs to be the challenge. Last week needs to be the challenge for you. You need to be challenged in your boldness. But some of us here need to hear the words of Christ and seek to share the truth of the gospel according to Colossians 4, 2-6. It says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, an account of which I am in prison. This is Paul speaking here. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. To unbelievers, that's what that word is. Making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you might know how you ought to answer each person. You know, lots more could be talked about here. There's so much in these first eight verses, but we have to cover, we have to move through Esther at a certain pace here, okay? So we're going to talk a little bit more about verses 9 to 14. But if... If this is a case study of how to speak truth to people well, you could say that verses 9 to 14 are a case study as well. <laughs> okay? They're a case study in how, in how to b- not build your identity. In building your identity on temporal things, things that won't last. And we find it in the ma- this man named Haman. Okay? And I just want to read verses 9 to 14 real briefly here. So would you, read, would you look, look with me into this passage? And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. He sent and brought his friends and his, uh, his, friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, 
all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited uh, by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all the friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then joy, go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. And so this, this one, if that's the, the case study, how to talk to people, this is a case study on how to build your life around your own glory. During this book, Esther, though, has two names. Uh, right at the beginning, Hadassah is her Hebrew name, and she has Esther, which is her Persian name. And we get a sense of conflict inside of this woman. Uh, and she's got to have a bit of a conflict in her identity. Is she a Hebrew girl? Is she a Persian girl? Is she one of God's people or is she not one of God's people? Does her allegiance lie with God or does her allegiance lie with a man, this man named King Xerxes? Will she obey God re- regarding commands concerning diet? Will she eat the Jewish way or will she eat the Persian way? And will she blend in with the culture of the day or will she set herself apart? If she just stayed into the, in the culture of the palace, she would be comfortable. And God, uh, but to obey God would put her comfort and life at risk. It's not like she hadn't seen what had happened to Queen Vashti when she, when she displeased the king, right? She had seen firsthand what happens when the queen doesn't do what, what uh, Xerxes wants. And so... Up till chapter 5 here, we see her life as this conflicted life. That's why I believe the Bible even gives us two names for her. It shows the, the conflicted identity. And it's a good question even to ask ourselves in this moment. To ask ourselves is, do we have any sort of conflicted identity in our lives? Do we sometimes, we, sometimes Christian, sometimes not? Sometimes holy, sometimes not. Sometimes generous, sometimes we're greedy, right? Sometimes living for God, excited about God, sometimes hiding from God. This is conflicted identity. Haman has no such conflict of identity. He knows who he is. He is Persian through and through. And so... He's a part of the greatest nation this world has seen up to that point. Okay? He is part of the, the nation that is the most powerful in the world. Haman is second in command to the very king himself. Haman is powerful. He is wealthy. And his desire is for recognition, his recognition to flow out to everyone. He wants everyone to know who he is. Okay? And he absolutely loves his newfound position of power. You see it here. Verse 11, uh, 
shows us what this looks like for him. He invites all of his family, all of his friends to a party, and then he proceeds to brag about himself. Okay? I don't know about you, but this does not sound like a good time to me. But if you were a part of it, you're, you've got to respect and you're probably invited by the second in command. So you, maybe it's a social thing. I've been invited by the second in command. So you've got to listen. You've got you to put up with a, a braggart. Okay? So here's what he, here's what he says about himself. He, he, he tells everyone how great he is, first off, in verse 11. He says, he recounts to them the splendor of his riches. Let me tell you how wealthy I am. He tells them about all the things. Let me show you my, the side of my, my, my wallet, okay? Then, and then he says, the, uh, the number of his sons, right? So that's about family legacy. My sons are going to carry on my name. My sons are going to receive all of this, and my name is going to continue on generation to generation. So let me tell you, that's, uh, that's great. All the promotions that the king had honored with him. So he says, I, I, I've been, uh, I used to be here, now I'm here. Right? And then he talks about how he advanced him above all the officials and all the servants of the king. And then he talks about, he talks about his political power. And how he's now number two. And then finally, he talks about national pride. He, he is part of the best country in the world. We sometimes see that in our own country. Sometimes a little bit to the south of us at times, too. <laughs> Nationalistic pride. Okay? He roots his idolatry in this. He is King Xerxes, right-handed man in the most powerful nation of the world. But there's a fly in the ointment. There's a problem. One person in all the kingdom will not bow down to him. And his name is Mordecai. And when Haman passes by, there's no bowing. There's no fear. There's nobody. Mordecai's not fearful of him. And Haman's heart fills with hate for him. It's not enough to have a hundred people passing by and falling to their faces before him. Uh, before him, he sees only the one Mordecai who's standing in the back, who will not bow. You know, it's like uh, it, even in that situation, you can have a hundred praises, and one person criticizes you. What are you thinking about that night? Right, that one criticism. His heart is so motivated by pride, he can't even stand it. It's taken over his heart. In the middle of his bragging and his friends and family, he says this, the queen is having a party with a guest list of three. Guess who made the cut? Me. I'm the one who made the cut. And I, but I would trade all of this, all of it, if I could just see Mordecai die. I want him gone. I want him dead. And his wife and his friends give him bad advice. He say, they say to him, instead of confronting him on neurotic thinking, okay, on how bad it is and how it's been a bad idea to do things to the Jewish people of other, if you're in the other nations in history, they tell him to build a killing machine that's basically designed to impale or hang Mordecai upon it. And so they just keep giving him bad advice and saying yes to him. There is yes crowd. They're just, you're right. You're the best. 
He surrounded himself with yes, we call them yes men, but like people who would just tell him how great he is. Do we as people surround ourselves with people only tell us that we're how great we are? Or will we actually put people in our lives and allow people to speak the truth to us and confront us on our sometimes often neurotic thinking? <laughs> and I just say these are bad friends. It's not just a personality conflict that's driving Haman nuts. His idolatry is complete. His identity is based on honor, recognition, respect of people. And Mordecai is just the guy. He's just the guy that is bringing out of the heart what's in his heart already. Okay? You might not like Mordecai, but it's just revealing what's inside of him. And the results are almost predictable. Idolatry, if you want to think of this, idolatry leads to demonization. Haman's identity is based on Persia being the center of the world. Haman, a second in command of that, of that nation, when he demands honor, he demonizes the one man who won't give it to him. Haman demands appreciation. So he demonizes the nation which Mordecai represents, and he becomes a racist who desires re- genocide. His idolatry leads to him doing things he probably never would have thought he was capable of. But he's willing to let millions of people die because he hates the one person. And this can happen in our lives and our culture today. If our hearts get out of whack and our identity is based on idolatry, we, if we base our idolatry on our nation, on our, we can, what happens is we can demonize other nations. If we idolize our income, we demonize anyone who could potentially take away from my bottom line. We idolize our comfort, so we demonize anyone who makes me feel uncomfortable. We de- Here's the one. If you idolize love, you demon- and then people fail you in it, you demonize those people too. And so when we read these verses, we see this lack of wisdom in Haman. It's like, here's Esther, here's Haman. You're supposed to notice the difference between the two of them. And this Haman, he's doomed to failure. The big message here is unmistakable. If, you, if your identity is found in the temporary it will end. Friends, it will end. If you put your identity in your life in the temporary, it will end. But if it is found in the eternal, the things that God is talking about, it is forever. That is the promise of God to you. And this is where the gospel, it comes alive in this chapter for us. Haman is looking at his identity in all the things that exhaust him. They frustrate him and they ultimately fail him. He chooses to align himself against God and his people. And then we contrast that with Esther. And Esther is having an identity crisis. She hasn't come all the way yet. 
Okay? We, gotta, we, not, we, gotta go, we know the end of the story. You've got to understand, we're in, we're in chapter 5 here. She's just taken the first step of, of aligning herself with God. She hasn't come all the way yet. She has an identity crisis, but she chooses to align herself with God's people. And it's so real life in Esther here. You, we find a person who doesn't know the future. When you choose to take a risk for God, do you know the future? You don't know how it's going to work out. You don't know if it's going to like, be good for you right in this immediate moment. You don't know if you're going to lose jobs, lose friends, lose influence in your life. That's what I love. If you just stop and, and pause in this, you see the risk that Esther is taking temp- in the temporal like, areas of her life. This is a decision that you and I can resonate with this together today. Because we don't know if everything in this world will work out for us if we choose God's path for my life. Esther's taking a risk, but in the truest sense, sense, it's not a risk at all. She's aligning herself with the God of the universe, and even if she loses her life, she says, I will gain eternity with God. Friends, if this is true for Esther, should this not be more true, even more true for believers in Jesus Christ? This story is a contrast of kingdom and kings. In Xerxes' kingdom, people find a tyrant. He's unpredictable. He's harsh. His throne is unapproachable. And you can't come to it without invitation. In God's kingdom, it's like this. Jesus says, come... Come to my throne. You don't have to be invited. Okay? You can come freely, without fear. His throne is grace. It's nothing like Xerxes. I want you to listen to Hebrews 4.16. It says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace and help in our time of need. Confidence, grace, mercy, these are found when we serve Jesus. The counter to the earthly kings and the kingdoms of this world. You don't have to perform to be important, to have confidence. You are important because you are a child of the God who loves you. Jesus loves you. And when you turn your life over to him in faith, he says, you can come to me. So why is it so vital that we get this right in our lives, if we think rightly about our identity? When your identity moves from being, I'm not one of God's people, to one of his children, it changes everything. If you're not sure where your identity is rooted here today, you're forced to find your worth in all the things around you, in all that you might achieve in your life. You know, the size of your wallet. And this is changing in our world, but this is often what it was for guys. The size of your wallet, that's that's what uh, was a sign of your achievement. Okay? The size of your dress. That's That's who it is. Who you're dating or not dating, who you marry, who you won't marry, whether you have your parents' approval or not, the car you drive, the clothes you wear. 
And the Apostle Paul, he speaks directly into this thinking concerning identity in Galatians 2.20. And I... And my wife was just, she gave me this passage this week. And she said this, uh, she said, you should, she should look at this one. And I said, that's great. That's the one I want to I read. So in the message paraphrase, paraphrase Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And I'm no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. When you move from being to one to being one of God's children in faith, there is an unmistakable change. The gospel reminds us that God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to restore us, to restore our identities as children of God through the cross and the resurrection. And you can't achieve this new status. It's not meant to be achieved. It's got to be received by faith. It's like a, a child being born to loving parents. The child hasn't done anything. The child hasn't achieved anything. They don't work for their identity. They work out of their identity. Because they're loved. They're cared for and they're part of the family. And so it is when we're born through in Jesus Christ. We receive this new identity. And we don't live for this. We don't live for our identity. We don't work for our identity. We work out of our identity. If we don't get this, you will live frustrated lives. You and I. It's not you. Me too. We will be frustrated because we're trying hard to please God when God says, I never asked you to do all these things to please me. I want you to rest here in my son and then work out of that rest. And so church, this chapter gives us one of the most powerful contrasts in identity. Esther choosing alignment with God's people, and this produces wisdom, it produces gentleness, it produces humility, it produces all these things that are often we find in Galatians called the fruit of the Spirit. And then we have, uh, and we have Esther choosing this identity as a child of God, and she says, and, and then, then the, on the other side there's Haman, who chooses alignment with all the idols of this world. Recognition, acceptance, power, and this produces violence. It produces enough that someone's life snowballs into being a genocidal maniac. And so as we finish today, I want to, there's really just a couple good, I think, for my own heart. I was just trying to think through this my own heart devotionally this week. I want to ask you a couple devotional questions for you to think about. There's a lot of things we don't know about this story. We don't know if Esther is fearful or not when she comes to the king. We don't, we're not given everything right into her spirit. We're not given a glimpse into everything. We don't know whether she had insight even into God's plan for her when she planned a second banquet. And this should be an encouragement to you if you're a bit of a skeptic here with us today. If you're like... I'm just kind of not sure about what he's talking about today. 
And if you're a skeptic, here's what I want to say. God calls you to take steps of faith even if you're not sure of everything. If you don't have all the, if you might have fear in your life. And he says, you know, I'm going to help you take the next step. I want you to come to me. But I can tell you this, unequivocally, Esther chose the better identity than Haman. Because Esther's choice of identity is putting trust in something, sorry, Haman's choice of, of identity is putting trust in something that will ultimately fail. And Esther chooses eternity. Now I can say only God can help you with this this choice. It's not like I can preach this and then manipulate you into making a decision here today. But some of you in this room need to take that step of of saying, God, I want to uh, follow you in my life. I want to step out of my fear and I want to I want to follow you and accept the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And then he rose again and he conquered all this. He conquered sin and death so that I might have a restored relationship and be a child of his. And this passage, whether you are a skeptic or a Christian, pushes us to the place where we ask ourselves, will we align ourselves with God's plans or not? And these are the sort of plans of decision. These are questions of decisions of repentance. Throughout biblical history, people had to trust God when the future wasn't known to them. You know, Abraham had to trust God when he was told to leave everything and go to a foreign land. Ruth had to refuse Naomi's invitation to go back to her people and align herself with, and she chose to align herself with God's people. David had to choose not to take matters of, of, into his own hands when he could have killed Saul at the back of the cave. And he chose to wait on God's plans. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, when they were faced with the furnace, they said, we will choose to go into the furnace, and if we die, we die, but we believe God's going to save us. So I ask you today, what's God saying to your heart? What place does he ask you today to, he's asking you to trust in him and not in your own success, your own recognition, your own uh, ways of, of doing things, not in your own abilities, but in his love for you. Can you say this deep down inside? I trust you, even if it doesn't work out the way that I, um, I want right now. I've got this plan for my life. Will you trust God in the, in the circumstances of your life? And if I lose everything that I hold dear, I align myself still with your plan. And if we choose this kind of trust, the Bible says this is the better identity. And I'm asking today, will you choose the better identity for your life? To align yourself with God and not in your own trust, in your own uh, successes and ways. So let's pray. God, we come and we ask that this time as we come to communion, that we reflect on this, your sacrifice in our lives. God, would you show us 
your ways and what you're calling each of us to do to respond. Whether you, you're, there are a skeptic in this room and, Lord, you're asking them to take this, the first step of, of trusting in the gospel, in the good news that you are uh, real and have done everything that is needed to restore relationship. Whether we are a follower of Christ and we are seeing in our own places, in our own ways, that we have uh, got into a pattern of trusting in ourselves rather than uh, trusting and, and we set our identities in the things around us rather than being a child of the King. So today, God, would you just speak in your ways, in your power? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.